Welcome to Escape Routes with Condé Nast Traveller. My name is Melinda Stevens, the Editor-in-Chief of Condé Nast Traveller US and Condé Nast Traveller UK, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our podcast series. Travel is all about storytelling, a story of a place, of its people, of a journey, and at Condé Nast Traveller we've always celebrated the most transportative, evocative travel writing. With much of the world currently grounded, we've come together to take you to some of our favourite places, if only in your imagination, by listening to our most loved travel stories read aloud by the writers who penned them. We hope these short escape routes allow you to daydream of far-flung adventures, discover the world's curious corners or recast familiar destinations in a fresh light, and that you love these travel stories as much as I do. Hello, my name is Rick Jordan. Welcome to Colin House Travellers Escape Routes. I'll be reading my piece on Malta, which featured in the May 2020 issue of Colin House Traveller. I hope you enjoy it. At some point in my life, I'd like to have a Maltese wooden balcony to call my own. Some people have cabins in the woods and sheds at the bottom of the garden. But I think there are a few finer places from which to watch the world go by than the Galleria. Cantilevered out over the street and painted bright, they line the Baroque sandstone townhouses like Harlequin cable cars, with enough space for a chair or two, a few ferns, a drink to hand, a place to pay peekaboo, gossiping of neighbours, watching fishermen mend their boats, a place to drift off in and dream of storm-tumbled seas, galleons with gull-white sails and pirates with gleaming scimitars. Malta is a land that can be a little hazy in imagination. It was British for a couple of centuries, then not British and independent, but with Whitehall red telephone boxes that startle as much as a lamppost in the snow-covered forest. Before that, successive waves of invaders and settlers, Phoenician, Arabic, Italian, left behind tidal flats of language, buildings and food. The Maltese themselves usually appearing as walk-on parts in their own history. The island lies on the periphery of Europe, but at the heart of the Mediterranean, facing north, yet with a southern disposition, a small archipelago with a gravitational pull that's made it almost a condensed version of our continent, a palimpsest of mysterious standing stones and Roman remains, colonial sea battles and Parisian-style shop signs, all stitched together by flinty dry stone walls. It's also another island nation currently holding its identity up to the sun and considering its place in the world. There are no lakes or rivers on Malta, but the ocean is never more than a quarter of an hour away. Nowhere is very far. The main island is just 20 miles by 10. In the farm village of Gudja, goats are heard along the lanes while planes take off at the airport, just a five minute walk away. 
I've crisscrossed from the tiny capital Valletta to the western cliffs of Dingley, where prehistoric temples huddle with thousand-yard stairs out to sea. Then I might walk down to swim at Garlapsi Bay, joining a congregation of women who bob in the water in beehive hairdos and necklaces and trade stories, almost as if in a village square that's been submerged under the water. It's warm enough to swim in the waves till Christmas, off the beaches of Golden Bay and Ganeshna, when the countryside turns from parchment to green and oranges still festoon the trees. In the evening, a foray perhaps to the old capital of Medina, rising above the fields like a painted backdrop from the film El Cid. A Baroque city that's utterly unspoilt. Many of Malta's oldest families still live here, gathering at Fontanella Cafe on the Bastion walls for chocolate cake. The next morning I might bust down south to a fishing village with the throat-catching Arabic name of Marsaxlok and walk up past industrial chimneys and swirls of wild flowers to St Peter's Pool where sprat-brown teenagers jump off pancake spatters of rock into the water below. There's a natural brutalism to the landscape. It's a barnacle of sandstone whose very existence seems to imply resilience and survival. It has drawn in castaways and dreamers. Parts of this rock are riddled like a termite nest, with passageways and tunnels, bored over the centuries. I like to think of them as rabbit holes in time, out of which stumble Christian knights and Turkish janissaries. The nonsense poet Edward Lear, who holidayed here with a sketch pad. Coleridge, who came to kick his opium habit. Odysseus. And St Paul, shipwrecked on Malta in AD 60, at least according to legend. Out of another tunnel mouth, the cast of Popeye, the Robin Williams movie that time forgot, filmed on the west of the island and whose wooden set, built by Scandinavian carpenters, still stands strong, a theme park to which mystified children, who have presumably never seen the film, are taken by their parents. It's like Beirut. You either get Malta or you don't. Susanna Sharp tells me at 18th century Casa Bonavita in the quiet town of Attard, just next to Medina, which she and her husband, Christopher, are in the process of transforming into a hotel. A place of a room with a view and souciance and parterre hedges, a lawn for summer cocktails. If people think they're going to come and have a nice beach holiday like Mallorca, it's not like that. The Maltese live their lives oblivious to tourism. It's a hard-working place where you just don't know what will happen next, she says. One minute you'll have a cove to yourself, the next an entire family will be setting up kitchen tables and chairs right next to you. There's a freedom here, in a way. Some laws are rarely enforced. Sharp, a textile designer who founded London-based rug company, comes from an old Maltese family and spent her early years on the island, arriving by boat from Sicily and hearing the growly voices of men on the dockside, once spying Colonel Gaddafi riding horseback down the lanes. She and Christopher have also just rescued a twenties pottery in Attard at Villa Bologna and are restoring it, bringing back old designs, jugs that make a satisfying glugging noise, 
hand-painted pineapple lamps, bowls in the shape of artichokes. Sharp is of a still youthful generation who can just remember the time when dusty Malta was aligned with the ley lines of Hydra and Ibiza, the sunshine and slow beat of village life, enticing figures such as English abstract painter Victor Passmore, pioneer of the Euston Road School, who collected cats by the dozen and set up studio in a crumbly farmhouse, and the naked ape zoologist Desmond Morris, who promptly started sketching the Phoenician eyes of fishing boats. Chain-smoking polymath Anthony Burgess, too. The Clockwork Orange author, who was outraged when his books were confiscated for being obscene. Nicholas Montserrat and Gozo, too, and Martha Gellhorn, says Sharp. Her biggest passion, apart from writing, was swimming, and she was obsessed with the quality of the water here. She'd rent a flat near... Manolo Island and write and swim every day. These were corduroy bohemians, a latter Bloomsbury set amid the lizard heat. I meet a survivor from that scene at his house in the eastern resort town of St Julian's. The architect and poet Richard England, now in his eighties, with a halo of white hair like Gilgood's Prospero. Maltese-born, he studied under mid-century Renaissance man Gio Ponti his own buildings were influenced by the materials and simplicity of Malta, candy-coloured modernist structures that resemble abstract paintings. He showed me his drawings of imaginary cities, bubbling across the paper like frogspawn, inspired by Italo Calvino, and perhaps by a need for order on this unpredictable island. He talks of the Neolithic temples, ancient wisdom, and the island of Filfla off the southwestern coast said by some to be a remnant of Atlantis. Others, that it was a village thrown here by the devil for being more sinful than he could bear. Sometimes I wandered the island alone, meeting pale stone saints, hands raising supplication on street corners. Sometimes my companion is Dushka Belezevich, a friend who has lived on Malta for the past twenty years, an emigre from the former Yugoslavia, with something of Schiaparelli about her, she has a keen-eyed outsider's perspective, a wariness of gentrification, and an appreciation of island eccentricity. Trained as a psychologist, she picked up a camera and started documenting unpostcards of hole-in-wall cafe bars, Catholic totems, and tangled doodles of electricity wires. Many places no longer exist. Malta was a lot emptier two years ago, she says. It was like that film... Gabriel Salvatore's Mediterraneo, about a boat party stranded on a Greek island, or the Wild West. Now visitors take photos of me smoking on my balcony. I give them the finger, but they only seem to like that more. Rushka's mouth curls in disapproval at some changes. The old-fashioned stationers that closed become a sportswear store. The wrought-iron Victoria Market in Valletta, reimagined as a food mall with escalators. Instead, she leads me to a hall belonging to a local marching band. 
organisations that inspire football-like devotion, whose brass-toting legions turn Saints Day processions into fat Tuesday-esque hootenannies. Few outsiders think of entering in, but these halls are open to all, a working men's club of theatrical grandeur, where a rough-collared statue of La Valette, dogged saviour of Malta during the great siege of 1565, vanquisher of the legendary Turkish corsair Dragut, looks on as plates of tunisanis and crisps are served. At the Crystal Palace Cafe in the town of Rabat, where shelves are a pop art writer confectionery, tea is made in glasses with sweet carnation milk, chai style, and served with pastizzi, explosively flaky pastries filled with ricotta or mushy peas. Old men with Oliver Hardy trousers and few words sit all about, save for the woman opposite us, a scream in mills and boom pink, a pooch in matching outfit and nail varnish. I'm drawn back to Valletta again and again. It's something about the patterner. Turning down sepia streets, past scuffed doorways the colour of old tattoos, and roads that fall and rise in a parabolic curve for almost the entire length of the small city. Vintage shop signs act as landmarks, a typographic urban safari for spotting handmade designs from the city's heyday, 1920s through to the 1950s. Up under his master's voice, hanging on St John Street, an imaginary crackle of gramophone spinning a ghost soundtrack, down to useful bazaar, gold leaf against coral black wood. Stopping opposite Carmelo Delia, house furnisher, red and white on bottle green, I ask a shopkeeper when it was last open. He looks up, squints and grins, not since the Falklands War. Another tells of dusty, jarndyce versus jarndyce style family legal disputes, which consign properties to perpetual emptiness. A roll call of borgs, butty geeks and zamets. It's like Havana without the old Buicks, the signs evoking a pre-war era of boat trains in Brillcream. The actor David Niven, posted here in the 1920s when he was in the army, wrote about superstitious carriage drivers who shifted position in their seats after dark to prevent the devil sitting next to them. The invaders who made the most resounding impression were the Knights of St John, a roaming order of Catholic warriors who famously fought off a mighty fleet of Ottoman troops in 1565, raising cliff-sized fortifications that survive to this day. Their Grand Harbour is a spectacle of incredible Golden Age drama, glowing at sunset like a votive candle, and best crossed by wooden boats known as Lusu, an eye of Osiris, painted on the bow for good luck, as coal-rimmed as Elizabeth Taylor's in Cleopatra. Across the water are the three cities, set on two fingers of land, a jumble of houses and church domes rising either side, the colour of a da Vinci sketchbook. The city called Vittoriosa is the most appealing, tight lanes lined with pot plants leading to auberges of the French knights, and the Sunday flea market where stall owners sell bric-a-brac and wartime shells dug from farmers' fields. The well-off families from the north never come here, Vanessa Canini, the owner of a design store and a former bakery, tells me. They still think of the three cities as being ghetto, Time seems liminal. 
and climb up the stairs of the oldest house here, amateurishly restored to its 13th century original, and deserted as if the owner had just nipped out to have a pop at the Turkish Armada. Back on the street, a grizzled man with a bare chest like a silverback peers over a saloon door and reminisces about the time he and friends would fly old World War II planes over to Sicily for pizza and back. But then one crashed, then the other, and I knew I'd be next. So I stopped, he says sadly. No need to fly to Ragusa for a margarita now. Just a handful of years ago, as everyone will tell you, Valletta was a museum city, dead after dark. Now there are natural wines at Crew Bar, creative spins on an island ingredients at Noni Restaurant, while Straight Street, once a beacon for brawling, whoring sailors, has some rather nice cocktail bars. Though none as fun as Cafe Society, on steps leading down to the waterfront. Summer festivals send digital volleys ricocheting around the sandstone walls, and the country's cultural reputation is growing. Blitz Gallery opened in a townhouse belonging to creator Alexandra Pace's grandparents. It was empty for three decades, and now shows have included shroud-like 3D sculptures by Maltese artist Kane Kelly. On the horizon for 2021 is Mikas a major art space embedded in a bastion built by the Knights and egged on by Gozo-born interior designer and v and collaborator Francis Sotana. It's a grand project to be set beside Renzo Piano's reimagined city gate, a spectacle of geezer-like proportions that turned Valletta's defensive wall into a welcoming, arms-wide-open space. One afternoon during my most recent visit to the island, I was startled by the sudden sound of explosions. No one else seemed concerned. Bang, bang, bang. Following the noise, I realized there were fireworks, daytime ones, asterisks of smoke blooming in the sky. It was a Saint's Day parade. A church lit up the strings of lights, newspaper confetti gathering in snow-like drifts, a swaying procession of hooded medieval figures with night trainers peeping out below. Trumpets hooting like Sidney Bechet. Everyone happily oblivious to anything else. Malta is an island full of noises, sounds and sweet airs, gunpowder and bells. An island intent on doing its own thing, no matter what the world throws at it. This podcast was brought to you by Visit Malta. The islands of Malta, Gozo and Camino experience year-round sun and the flight times from the UK just three hours long. Malta is the perfect destination for both long and short trips. The islands boast three UNESCO World Heritage Sites, Michelin-style restaurants, numerous vineyards and endless adventure activities to enjoy on land and on sea. Often described as an open-air museum, Due to all the historical sites and stunning architecture located around the islands, Malta is perfect for exploring in the fresh outdoor air. With five-star hotels, boutique hotels in the store palazzos and private self-catering villas on offer, there are plenty of accommodation offers, whatever your preferences. Visit www.kironi.co.uk forward slash Malta 
to book your next holiday to the Maltese Islands and to discover for yourself why Malta there's always more to explore. We hope you enjoyed our Escape Routes podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to help boost us in the charts and ensure you are the first to hear about new episodes.